Welcome to a new audio feature of The Legacy of John Williams. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, editor of The Legacy of John Williams. Honored to present an exclusive interview with internationally acclaimed American conductor Leonard Slotkin. Maestro Slotkin is music director laureate of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra and honorary musical director of the Orchestre Nationale de Lyon. Slotkin is a dear friend of John Williams since decades, and he was one of the first conductors to present and record John Williams' music for the concert hall, a mission he still brings forward to this day. With the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, he is recording John Williams' concertos for solo instruments and orchestra on the Nexus label. In this interview, Maestro Slotkin talks about his friendship with John Williams, and his views on the maestro's music, but also about the great legacy of his own family and the heritage of the classic Hollywood film school. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad that you've accepted to talk with me about John Williams because uh, I'm trying to collect and gather interviews and thoughts and ideas from people who knows John, who plays his music, and people who who have experienced working relationship with him, but also people who are inspired by his music and by his musicianship. Sure. And you are friend with him since a long time, and you know him very well. I think that. It would be fantastic to talk with you about John and his music, but also about your own family and your own career. I'd like to start with a uh, with the legacy of your family. Your parents, Felix Slatkin and Eleanor Aller, uh, were two leading musicians in the Hollywood film music community. Uh, so, can you tell me a little bit about their history and how they came to perform in Hollywood film studios? And, and then also starting their own chamber music group, the Hollywood String Quartet. Well, my mother's side, everybody was a musician. My grandfather was a great cellist. His brother was a great conductor. They came from Belarus and they settled in New York in more or less 1903. So a couple people came earlier. And my father's side, There were no musicians, just my father. And his family settled 
in St. Louis, where we're talking right now. And my father studied violin and became the assistant concertmaster of the St. Louis Symphony when he was only 16 years, no, 19 years old. Um, eventually, both families moved to Los Angeles uh, for uh, different reasons, and my mother and father met at a competition at the Hollywood Bowl for soloists. My father won the competition, so my mother was angry, but eventually <laughs> they went to coffee and dated for two years, and then they got married. So my father at that point was the concertmaster at Warner Brothers. He would later go on to be the concertmaster at 20th Century Fox. My mother was the first cellist at Warner Brothers, and her brother was the staff pianist at Warner Brothers. So you had this part of life in the motion picture industry. They also began in 1947 the Hollywood String Quartet, which became one of the most important chamber music ensembles. And they also worked in the popular music industry in California, particularly for the label Capitol Records, working okay. mostly with people like Nat King Cole, George Shearing, and particularly Frank Sinatra. So it was a very diverse kind of background yes. that spurred on primarily because of the solidity that working in the motion picture studios at the time could provide. But it was not in the motion picture industry where they first met John Williams. They met him at uh, recording sessions because when he came to Los Angeles from New York, his first jobs were just being a pianist, playing for television, commercials, things like that. And gradually, John got uh, more into the creative side, working on uh, some television background music, eventually more substantial. But people recognized very early on that he was extremely gifted. He had the incredible talent to write memorable themes for the television shows he did, whether it was Lost in Space, he wrote yeah. two different themes, they're both great. He would write uh, Time Tunnel, you know, all, all these strange little things, and gradually got its break and went into the motion picture industry. Now, in the 1950s, each studio had its own orchestra. There were 11 studios. So they didn't get to know him so well then, but it was only after the collapse of the studio system in 1956 that they started working with John on a more regular basis. My father died in 1963, but my mother kept up a close association with him. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it, it didn't matter what the film was. John always wanted my mother to be the first cellist for the films he was scoring in Los Angeles. And it was at these sessions that I first met him when, you know, I, I, I knew all the musicians playing in the studios and I would just hang out all the time and say hello. And my mother introduced us to me. She said, there's this very talented young man, um, John Williams. And at that time, I had begun my studies at the Juilliard School in New York, which is where John himself studied. I was studying conducting, but I also continued to study piano. Mm -hmm. But the point is, we already had something in common and that our school was the same, and we even had some of the same teachers. I moved to St. Louis as assistant conductor in 1968, and already John was now beginning the 
big phase of his career. I was trying early on to program not just his music, but music by film composers into my regular concerts because I believed that the music had such importance to it that it had to be treated in a similar way as excerpts from opera or ballet would be, that it stood that way in importance. So I was constantly playing music by John, but not just the film music. I was playing works that he was writing as concert pieces. I think I may have been the first person to record so-called serious piece with the violin concerto and the concerto people didn't really know he was doing that there was a another piece for band that i used to do there was an elegy for strings and i just found him such an interesting composer no matter what he was doing uh and then over the years we would communicate when i would go out to la for whatever reason um we would try to get together lunch or dinner and i became absolutely a fan because he carried on a lineage a, a kind of writing style which was the one i grew up with because even though i didn't know Korngold, i certainly knew max steiner and dimitri tionkin and other great composers for films and here was john carrying on this tradition of symphonic writing for the films eventually the film world would kind of be split in two to people who wrote as john did elmer bernstein did it Jerry Goldsmith yeah. did it, Alex North did it, yeah. and so many others. And then even today you find people like Michael Giacchino, Tommy Newman, a few others who are really utilizing the older style of musical scoring, trying to develop themes around the characters, music that conveys the essence of the whole film. Yeah. And then there's the other school that is, of course, headed by Hans Zimmer, which is more interested in just dealing with the scenes on the screen and not so much interested in um, really developing a total musical personality for the films. That uh, That's not a criticism, really. It's perfectly yeah, understandable. Yeah, yeah. So when you write a, a big action film like he mostly does with his staff, he has music that he formalizes for the action sequences, the love sequences, but you don't come out really remembering the scores of most of the Zimmer films and his staff. But the other composers in the John Williams camp, they become the kind of, when you walk out of the theater, you are humming the tunes. The tunes are still there, and even the sound is still there. Yeah. So that legacy that John is leaving to everybody, I think, honestly, will always be there. I think there will always be composers who want to write for the symphony orchestra, write for the non-electronic instruments. They may use elements of electronic vocabulary, but it would be the principal way of doing it. It would be to have a more sweeping and powerful score based on the melodies or even the rhythmic patterns that a theme might produce. Yeah, but it's certainly true that, you know, the movies themselves changed a lot, especially in the last 10, 15 years. The language has changed. The style has changed, you know, now there is a a lot of cross-pollination between television and Mm -hmm. film industry. And, you know, you see in movie theaters things that are like television and you see in television things that are around. But I think that John Williams uh, had an incredible talent in, you know, staying afloat in a changing industry because now it's like six decades that he's doing this job as a composer. 
So it's, yeah. it's pretty fascinating to see, you know, working in the most recent Star Wars films, which are, of course, done in a style, in a way that reminds us of the older films. But they're different, and, you know, they're made more toward their younger audiences. But his music is so essential to the success of the films. That's right. So, so uh, again, like a little bit like I was talking about, it's primarily because John has this incredible gift to associate themes. It can be yeah. rhythmic element, it can be melodic, it can be harmonic, but he can assign them to the different characters in the film. So the music can either tell you, okay, here comes Indiana Jones or... Uh, here comes, uh, what's his name, Chewbacca, whatever it happens to be. <laughs> uh, but he didn't do this just with the uh, big extravagant films. He did it with smaller and more personal films, yeah. A Schindler's List. I mean, you come out of there and you remember that tune as much as you remember the film. Yeah. Uh, the same for some more uh, gentle films uh, like the BFG or... Yeah. Uh, JFK, which was actually a really remarkable score. I agree, yes. Uh, reminding us that not all of John's collaborations were with Spielberg. <laughs> I think they've done, what, 22 films together, yeah, something like that? Kind of, yes. It's amazing. Uh, but he also is adaptable to other producers and directors. He can adjust. He is. the matter of the concert music. In Detroit, we performed and recorded, so far, seven of the concertos. They're not all released yet. John loves writing these pieces, particularly for members of the Boston Symphony. And in Detroit, we were very busy recording many. We recorded the violin concerto, the first one, the cello concerto, the flute concerto, the bassoon concerto, the... The trumpet concerto you also did. Trumpet record tuba, tuba. we did. Yeah. The idea was to try to make a cycle. I don't know if we'll finish it or not, but it's been a good product because I can, when I do a John Williams program, I will usually do the concert music on the first part and then some of the film music on yeah. the second part. So people can get a true sense of who the composer is. It's interesting that you're calling in this week because here in St. Louis, we're premiering a song cycle by the composer Jeff Beale, who's most famous I guess, for House of Cards. Yes. He's a smaller kind of composer in that he writes for independent films. He doesn't write the big blockbusters. Yeah. But here he is with a song cycle based on letters from his great-grandmother. And it's very moving, very beautiful. So even if you don't know who he is, you know it's a good composer. And maybe if you listen clearly enough, you can tell that he has some kind of background in Hollywood as well. But I love that. I've commissioned many pieces from people who write for film and television because they deserve to be represented uh, in the, the repertoire these days. Absolutely. I think that when you were working at the St. Louis Symphony in the late 60s, early 70s, you were one of the very first to ask film composers to come out from Hollywood and ask them to write music for the concert hall. Did you want to get them out of the restrictions of writing for film? Or do you think that they had maybe... 
uh, a different approach to to music for concert hall than you know regular concert hall composers. That's a very good question, and I remember talking to John about it. Somebody had asked him a question: Did he feel restricted when somebody says this has to be fifteen and a half seconds long? And he said, "No, not really. It's like asking." If Bach felt restricted because when he wrote a fugue, he had to stick to the rules to make a fugue work, or when uh, Mozart writes a symphony, there are certain rules about how a symphony has to go in structure. Yeah. He says film composers just learn how to deal with the structure that they're given, and a good film composer adjusts perfectly well. Uh, they find out, okay, we've got uh, six seconds here, and maybe you'll use a certain motive from one of the characters and fit it in. Uh, that's that's where the great film composers come in, how to really learn how to do this in a way that keeps the musical integrity of the project. certainly at Williams, but also at Jerry Goldsmith, who is a composer which I think is really in need of, of a rediscovery, because I think that yes. probably we are now living in an era where a lot of the movies, except maybe for Star Trek or something like that, uh, are kind of, you know, less remembered than, of course, the streak of successes that uh, John Williams had. Uh, it's very interesting to see how these composers who were so able to, to make a synthesis of a dramatic scene and of a dramatic necessity, uh, were able to, to produce something, as you were saying before, with great musical integrity. And I think that they took a cue from the great school of the Korngolds and the Rojas and the Newmans. Yeah. What are the things that Williams took from that school of composers? I think the hallmarks for John were that, one, he kept to a very strict schedule. He would get up, have a little walk, breakfast, and then he'd go to the studio where his uh, office was, and he would work for eight hours every day. Still does. So it's a discipline. That's the first thing. Second thing is that probably when John sees the first rough cut of the film, without any music, he decides what kind of style he wants to bring into the film. And then he'll incorporate it usually into the main title, if there's a main title. So he's very aware of the style. Second thing he's aware of is that probably some of the parts of these scores that we love as the public, maybe not the best thing just to listen to without the film. It's hard unless you know the film. Hmm. So he's devised suites and certain pieces from all of his films. And you can just get arrangements here and there. And they're perfectly acceptable to be played by school orchestras. Uh, and that's nice. And, and uh, John is like the most famous living composer in the world. And people, whenever I say something like that, they go, no, we don't 
think of that. We think of like Schubert and Beethoven and Brahms, whatever it happens to be. And I said, no, look, here's this composer dealing in a society today which doesn't have so much interest in the culture. And here's a composer who's writing a little theme or a space chase or cowboys, whatever it happens to be. And he always knows what seems to be next. He's always able to predict that. And he also knows something very important that a lot of composers forget, and that is the sound of silence. When should there not be music? It's really important in creating suspense. Absolutely, yes. I think that Jaws is probably the best example in how he was able, with with Spielberg, of course, to make a, a sense of a very simple musical solutions, you know, mm-hmm. two notes, three notes, and that's yep. it. <laughs> But also when to use it and when, when to stay silent as well. Um, yes, this is a crucial part of music. about the, the the style and the vernacular of John's music. He seems to be the perfect synthesis in many ways of the European symphonic tradition and together with the American school of yes. writing. You know, But like, that's a lot a lot of the people who came from other countries did that as well. They keep some nature of their ancestry and then they learn because the facility of the players in both London and in Los Angeles is yeah. so high. They can play anything. They've been trained in all kinds of music. And so he says, oh, okay, but can you play a country fiddle <laughs> to my father? And dad pick up the fiddle and put it on his uh, lap or thigh, and he'd play it. He said, is that enough? Is that okay? Yes, yeah, okay. <laughs> so it, it is something that's slightly missing in today's generation. Don't see it so much anymore. But as soon as they realize, hey, there's money we can make mm. by playing both instruments, you might see more people studying it. What makes John's music so distinctive while also being a direct continuation of so many different traditions, according to you? Well, part of it is the orchestration. There are certain sounds that John uses all the time. Because of his knowledge of everything that's come before, he's very good at understanding what needs to come next. He just has this ability to create the right environment to listen and watch. While you're seeing the movie, and it, it seems silly, but one good thing to do is you know, take a 20-minute television feature, rather, or whatever you want to call it. Watch it the first time without any music. Then watch it again, but put the music volume up, and see how much difference this music makes. John does that. If you want it for a film, he's going to ask that there be about an hour and a half of music in a two-hour film. He likes to write constantly and have music going all the time. Now, there are some points when silence is necessary. In the, yeah. the, the most recent of the Star Wars film, when the big uh, battleship blows up, they were very clever. They just shut out the sound. Mm-hmm. And you see it in still images, and it's very powerful. Mm-hmm. But why is it powerful? Because it goes against what we expect, something different.
John is very humble about his music in general, especially about his concert music. He seems to be kind of that he has to fight a little bit with the idea of being a serious composer uh, or a writer of serious music. Uh, I have my own theory about this, but first I want to hear from you. Do you think that he he he's more attached maybe to his film repertoire than his concert music or he simply feels that there are two different words I, i think he's separated them very clearly for a while he didn't and you can hear part of nationalistic heritage in some of his music and yes. others are devoid of sounding american they could have been anybody in Well, as I said, the first one I did was the flute, and the first version of the violin concerto. And once I started doing that, I, I knew that I had to continue. It was important. And it was important for the audience to hear John with that voice, the other voice. It doesn't sound like the John Williams are used to, yeah. because he has a freedom, a flexibility of opening it up and just going with his imagination as opposed to what the director has. I'd like to, to, to step back a little bit about the legacy of your own family and given your privileged position as a witness of such a seminal, seminal historic period, how much important was the presence of such a large part of the European musicians or, you know, musicians coming from the European tradition, both composers and performers in the creation of the so-called Hollywood sound? It's huge. Because the um, same in the classical field, most of the people who were writing uh, for the films were not originally Americans. They came from all over the world. So the, the sound developed from the people who emigrated to other countries. Now, there were, there were some Americans out there, and not many people know all of their names, but the f composers, whether it was Previn or Marie Jarre, mm -hmm. uh, just on and on. They came to this country to discover new sounds, new music making, and they wound up being very popular in the commercial world. So it's it's okay. At the time you wondered, well, does it look like this is going to work? But now we know different. Now we know it has worked very well. I think that was a great respect of the musicianship back then. You know, the studios has a, such a tremendous respect toward the the figure of the musician and the composers. Studios had their own orchestras. Was there a sense of being a part of a community back then? Oh, you know? okay. yes. We didn't identify people by their styles. We just identified them by being human beings. So 
people from the pop industry would go to classical sessions, people from the classical sessions would go to watch pop sessions, and everybody was involved in the films. So it was a much more open time than it is now. In Los Angeles especially, there were also Schoenberg and Stravinsky. You know, there was this very big uh, community of people exchanging with each other. You know, there was not the idea of high and low probably there in <laughs> Los Angeles. It was probably more something that was born out of, um, of a prejudice. Yeah, uh, it was a great place to, to, to perform and also for, both for performers and for composers who can, you know, write something and have it played by the, you know, incredible musician two days after they wrote it. And I also marvel at that era in a way because uh, you told several times about the, the, the music parties that were happening at your parents' living room uh, where they could have, you know, Korngold or Alfred Newman or even Stravinsky and being there and performing together. So what recollection do you have of that period? And I, I knew when I was very little, we had a small garden area, not with plain glass on it, but I had passion for the, for the music all the time. And in my bedroom, I had a little record player, and I was always playing film music. I just always knew I wanted to be involved in this part of the industry in some way. Now, I haven't written a film score yet, but I've written a few pieces that are inspired by some of the composers I hung out with. Speaking about John's legacy, John is celebrated as one of the greatest composers of our time, and his music is part of the fabric of our imagination and also about the cultural heritage, of, especially of the United States, but I'd say the world entire. Do you think there are still things that have to be discovered about his music that we don't know about, things you yeah. think are worth mentioning and exploring? I think there probably are, but we probably won't hear them much anymore. We've gotten used to the way music is supposed to sound. But I think John is going to continue to write many more pieces for solo instruments and orchestra. And I also think now they'll start going back into films and you'll see a suite for piano and orchestra. Under the bottom, I can see where it'll be called A New Hope. Because <laughs> <laughs> something like that. I'm not too worried about it. You know, sadly, John may not be with us. We don't know. But when he's gone, at least those of us who knew him and worked closely with him, we're the people that can pass that on in the best possible way. Yeah. yeah. Mr. Zlatkin, thank you very much for your time and uh, good luck with all your projects and your you too, music making. Good luck with this project. I hope you get a chance to talk to a lot of different people <laughs> and uh, get the perspective of the musicians who played under him, yeah. uh, those of us who conduct his music and admire it. Um, we'll just continue on this path. I think there's no reason not to. Uh, after all, he's probably the most recognizable composer in the world. 
everybody knows John Williams music. <laughs> yes, yes, so, from you know from Alaska to Singapore, I think that's that right. is, yeah, it's a worldwide uh, heritage. I think that yeah. is, he's living such a huge legacy. Really. It is. It's so, true. I uh, hope to talk to you very soon and to meet you when you will come to Milan. Yeah, I hope so. I, I used to come quite often. I haven't been for a little while, but uh, hopefully soon again. Uh, Master Zlatkin, thank you very much for, for your time. Thank you. And talk you soon. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. You can find Maestro Zlatkin's recordings on Nexus.com. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more legacy conversation on the legacy of John Williams. This podcast is produced by Maurizio Caschetto for the legacy of John Williams.com.